Hey team, welcome to episode 98 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. When we're not in the podcast studio or assisting clients, Charles and I enjoy presenting around the country to both big and small groups, keynoting large national events, study clubs, dental schools, lunch and learns, dinner and learns, all of the above. Charles, we shall call him the road warrior. Most recently, Charles had the opportunity to present at the Hinman membership meeting in Atlanta. He received some great questions from the attendees, and we have a good feeling many of you have similar ones. So we're going to do a good old question and answer. A little background for you, if you are not familiar with the Hinman Dental Meeting or live elsewhere and haven't heard of it, the Hinman Dental Society is an organization with a strong focus on education, much like our outlook here at NDP. Every year, they host a great event called the Hinman Dental Meeting, where they provide dental professionals the latest and most comprehensive continuing education. Charles has had the opportunity to speak at Hinman for many years now, enjoys going back And I will say it is a first class event. I think it is the oldest dental meeting in the U.S. If I'm not wrong, if I'm wrong, I apologize. But it is steeped in history and tradition and just is a great event. And you've had the honor of speaking there. So hello, Mr. Loretto. Hello, Ms. Ratcliffe. Henman is just something near and dear to me. It's just kind of going these roads in life and you just figure out what's passionate for you. And this meeting, for whatever reason, has just been super close to me. So yeah, I've been very passionate about going there. And they had this Hinman membership meeting. I actually didn't even know about this. And I've been attending the March annual session for almost 10 years now. And so one of the key members invited me to this membership meeting, which I had no idea. But basically in November, it's all of the volunteers that run this organization. So the Hinman is set up instead of I don't know how many hundreds of employees or how many employees they would have running like the New York meeting or Chicago or California meeting, but him only has like actually like five employees. The rest is just all volunteer. So all the volunteers, they don't actually get a chance to hear you speak. You may even know me just from going to speak, but they actually speak. So I got went to go speak to their three to 400 members here in November. And it was just really, really fun. And the lecture was really trying to hit kind of four different subjects, manners, you know, younger people, financial planning decisions, evaluation, as well as kind of private equity. And so that was about a two hour lecture. And what I wanted to do is I gave about 30 minutes of Q&A, but I knew we weren't not going to get to all the questions. So everybody just write a bunch of questions down so that we can go over. And something I want to plug here is and again, it's super thankful that Hinman has given us this opportunity to do this. But last year, we were able to put a kind of a matchmaking event, which is incredible. We put together 130 students last year with about 50 sellers, I should say, established doctors in a room, exchange contact information so that basically private practice sellers and buyers can get together. This year, we're expecting 100 established owners that are looking for private practice buyers. And we have over 200 people expected on the buyer side to be in this room. So that's going to be on Saturday of the meeting, March 23rd. It's going to be a kind of an 8 a.m. till approximately 2 p.m. Buyers. So in other words, associates, if you're listening, you basically get this meeting for $85. We're going to put you up in hotel at night if there's still availability. We're going to pay for a Friday night party and this all day meeting on Saturday, lunch and a cocktail reception to follow. My established doctors, everyone who's listening on this special Henman podcast, please forward to other people that you know they could benefit from trying to find a private practice 
buyer for this episode and a link to attend this Hinman special event on Saturday where we're matching both buyers and sellers together. So it's our way, Christy, of trying to really promote private practice and private practice partnerships and just really helping with our established doctors having a vision and a transition plan for kind of their life's work. Yeah, and I think it's great. I mean, I think it provides a unique experience for both sides to hear and understand what the other side is going through, right? From two different buyer who's just coming out and is some of them were not even out of school yet. Or we're going to be, I want to get into ownership. How do I get there? Another group who's maybe thinking of transition and wanting to look for someone or wanting to look for an associate. And I think it's just a great way to kind of frame the conversation. And I think we've had a lot of people who have gone through this process and even just mentor relationships and just kind of networking. I mean, I think that. That's one of the things we harp on for buyers is network and get yourself out there. And this is one of the early opportunities to do that with people who are very connected in the space. So I think it's great. And it was a passion project that has been super successful. And I can't wait to see it come to fruition for year two. I know. It was the idea for last year. So it was fingers crossed. I remember my team looking at me, are you sure you're going to sign your name to X tens of thousands of dollars on hotel list? And what if no one shows up? And I said, I will cross that bridge when we get there. But they all showed up and <laughs> It all worked out and we were here for year two and excited. I just got the invitation for 25 to speak there again. So uh, we now have more pressure to make year two and year three <laughs> successful as well. So let's kick this thing let's, off, girl. Yeah, we went through some Q&A questions. So these are mainly from our sellers. All right. Yep. All owners. So, but I think again, as with every episode, I think it's great to hear our answers here and kind of apply it to what you know Agree. if you're a buyer. So this is a common question. So I'm just going to read it one time and we can kind of talk about it. But how many years prior to retirement should you have an exit strategy in place? Well, number one, your financial plan needs to be in order. Okay, so if you have zero money saved, that number may be 10 years before you bring it in. If your financial plan is in order, you've got two examples, you have no space, you got three to four chairs, then you know maybe it's just a year to 18 months just to try to find the right buyer and develop that transition plan. The transition plan could be where you're looking for an associate partner and maybe you've got plenty of space then, you know, I would say more on the immediate front. So I know there's some other questions that are going to be following here. What do you need to consider? But as far as from a timing standpoint, your financial plan needs to be in order, good accounting, good metrics in the practice, have understand a break even on the associate, you know, how this whole process is going to work. So give yourself at least a solid 18 months. Yeah, I would say, I think that's very true. I always say like, usually when you start thinking about transition plans, like you're probably already a little bit too behind, in my opinion, at least that that's our experience. Clearly, like making sure you're set for retirement, I think is something that people start thinking about way earlier, right? Just from a tax planning standpoint, or they should. But I feel like understanding how you want to transition, like that's something I think you can start doing well before you're ready. Like, would I want to work back for someone? Do I want a partner ever? Do I want to to like sell and then go corporate or DSO. Like those are all kind of bigger items that I feel like if you think about those things and you know the direction you want to go, that you can also then like know how long it's going to take before you actually implement an actual plan. Because for me, it's, there's two parts to that, right? When do I start thinking about a transition plan as soon as you can, like just knowing yourself. And then the second part is actually implementing the transition plan. Is it give yourself at 
least 18 to 24 months just to make sure that you aren't done when you start trying to do this process. Yeah, I think one more comment there is what is the definition of retirement? Retirement could be that you sold the practice and still work back as mm-hmm. an associate. And you, maybe to this person that is in their mind, they're quote unquote retired. Retirement to me is you're not practicing dentistry anymore. You, you yeah. are truly out of the practice. So to me, you want to time all of that perfectly. And it could be a staggered sell. It could be selling 100%. You working back a little bit as the associate, maybe as an independent contractor. And then also that timing too, that may be your timing, maybe your emotional timing, maybe your health is kind of helping in this, but also has to do with the buyer as well. Sometimes in your idea and your vision is one thing, but perhaps we're waiting on a buyer, a certain situation to happen with our buyer for whatever reason. They could have a six month year non-compete and they're six months into it. They could have, they're waiting for a spouse to completing a residency to move that area. There's lots of different factors that will come into this. Yep, absolutely. And then this next question kind of goes along the same vein. And I will say that we're going to kind of switch back between more transition and more kind of like, okay, I'm an owner and I own, how do I handle this? So we'll kind of go back and forth between both pure transition questions and then just ownership questions. But this guy or gal said, in the next few years, my partner plans to retire. How can I financially plan for the buyout and servicing the loan as the sole owner? So what are your thoughts on that one? I mean, to me, it depends on the size of the practice. Okay, let me give you an example. Let's say it was a smaller two-doctor practice, say it was doing a million two and decent overhead, 60% or less. I think it's a one-doctor practice. So I really would have a problem with that doctor buying out that other side of the practice. But if it was a two and a half million dollar practice busting at the seams, some 50 new patient, and maybe that senior doctor was actually doing more of the restorative than you, the buyer, and they truly were going to quote unquote, just get out of the practice, then it's a who's going to do the work issue. Okay. So in that example, if it had a really low overhead on the two and a half million dollar practice with a 50% overhead, I'll tell you financially, it's going to make sense to actually buy out that doctor, have them work back as a percentage, maybe 30% on their adjusted production number, maybe bring an associate to do that same procedure and get paid. You're going to profit off of that. I can show you the example of a $2 million practice and it's got a horrible overhead at 70. Well, now all of a sudden that doctor saying, hey, I want you to buy me out. And maybe your contract even says that. But the reality is there's not enough profit there. So even when you do pay them back 30% on their adjusted production, now you got to pay a bank loan. And all of a sudden that cash is not going to make sense to you as the investor buyer because you've got to do more work with basically making the same money or less. So it's not going to be advantageous to you. So mm-hmm. it depends a little bit, you yeah. know. I want to buy you out, seller if I'm the buyer. When it's a really low overhead, I can do the work and the value is reasonable. And I don't want to buy you out when I can't do the work and it's got a high overhead and a high price. Yep, 100%. I'm going to switch gears to hopefully a quick one for you. How often should I be talking with my CPA if I'm an owner? I like on the quarterly basis. Honestly, I, I like to see typically or Keen Waters will have some type of projection for you. So for example, if I'm budgeting for a practice, it's going to do a million two. And basically I'm looking at previous numbers. I can see they're consistently doing 100. I know it's kind of where they're tapped out. I've already budgeted. They have a 55% overhead. I've already budgeted. They're going to make over 500,000. I want to see the practices on pace. Yeah. I want to see the practices on pace. And I can do that on a quarterly basis. Then I can make adjustments throughout the year for estimated tax payments, as well as other key decisions like data equipment, finish out cost, or any other major decisions in the practice. 
Yeah. And I think that was someone else's question of like, how do I plan for my quarterly taxes? Easiest way to evaluate taxes owed on your quarterly taxes. And you just answered that, right? Like budgeting. Yeah. And I'll go into that a little bit further. So let's say, for example, that I'm talking to a doctor and I know they're going to do this million too. And I know they're going to make, for simplicity, 500000 Well, a good tax advisor will meet with them yearly and say, okay, we're going to deduct the following, you know, call it 100000 towards 401k profit sharing plan, maybe discretionary things, cars, kids, meals, et cetera, another 50 grand, normal depreciation interest or whatever. Let's say for this example, it's all the way down to instead of 500 taxable, it's 300 taxable. Then uh, the advisor will say, okay, based on this information, we are going to estimate that your taxes for the year are going to be, for simplicity, 90000 So then that advisor will take a portion out of their salary, then have quarterly estimates. What this is doing, Chrissy, is just preventing a surprise. Mm-hmm. Where most dentists get so upset is the surprise. I feel like I did the same number last year, but now all of a sudden I owe more in taxes. I don't understand. I feel like my you know, advisor is not proactive. I feel like I'm learning more on YouTube or lectures and my advisor doesn't want to do the following. So ideally, you know, you'd want to be able to look into the future. Like for example, at KMARS, we'll look at 23, budget the collections for 24, and then go ahead and budget all the way what they're making, taxes, estimates, and go ahead and start putting that into their financial plan. This is like probably very specific, but I know we get this question a lot from our senior docs as they look to transition. Once you sell your practice, how long should they keep their entity active or should they dissolve it immediately? Like what's kind of, and it clearly it's going to probably depend, but what's the general answer there? Yeah, so general answer is if you do keep the entity open, it needs to be for a reason. Keep in mind if you have an entity open at even a $0 amount, you're going to end up filing a tax return that has $0 in it. So you want to shut it down if there's no activity. The activity might be where you're picking up other income. So you might be an independent contractor at that practice that maybe you sold, maybe it's another practice. It could be some speaking income that maybe you're doing. So as long as there's some activity there that we can have and justify the cost of the tax return, then it's a vehicle that we can still run things through the business. So simple answer there, there's activity and we can justify through it the corp because you're paid as a 1099, then great. If you're just simply a W-2 earner and there's no other independent contractor money's coming in, no speaking, anything like that, then you shut the corp down. Awesome. Shifting gears a smidge. This question is, what is the average debt today of a student coming out of school? You know, I do speak at a lot of programs and it seems like it's an extreme. It's zero for, you know, it's a decent number. Yeah, I think you know? the average is like 400 something. Right, right. right. But mostly because. Right. You got some zeros in there yeah. too. So you'll typically see a D4. I mean, there's programs, Roseman and, and USC that have three year programs, but there are programs, majority of them are all four of the 70 schools now. They're going to come out with about 400,000 of debt. Then when they go into certain specialties, they may pick up another 200, 300,000. I mean, you, you've got programs like a three-year orthodontic program, like in Jacksonville or something. I think that's like another 90,000 per year. So it just depends on the program. Mm-hmm. But you now you got the interest on the 400 that's starting to happen and it'll spiral. So it's a nice, safe number, four to 500. What I would say is as a owner doctor, don't worry about it. It's truly, it's a number that honestly they can manage. When we lecture to students, we're not trying to help them get out of debt. We're trying to help them get out of school, get some education on the clinical side get some cash saved so they can buy a business. The bank is actually going to give them the money for your practice. So let me just help you with this. If you own a practice owner and call it a million two practice and say the valuation is $1 million. If your question is, is this person going to be able to get a bank loan? The answer is yes. Even if they have $500,000 in dental school, 
yes. As long as they have some liquidity, roughly about 6 to 7% of liquidity on the million that they're going to borrow in this example, they're going to get the loan assuming they can do the work and assuming you have a practice that can justify it. In other words, you need to have a reasonable overhead for your practice. If you've got a practice on a million dollars, collections has got a 70% overhead, that cash is tight. If you've got a million dollar practice with a 50% overhead, that practice has an amazing cash flow. And now all of a sudden the bank is going to be you know, even more excited about lending to that buyer, even if they have 600,000 dental school debt. Yep. The next set of questions is about associates. And I think this is the best place to start. What are the most valuable steps in evaluating a potential new associate? So lots of things to assess well, there. Well, look, I've been doing a lot of this. Let's go back to you, Christy. To me, I, when I think of an associate, I think of anybody. Mm-hmm. I think of the person, if I owned a Cane's Chicken or if I owned a hair salon or I owned anything. To me, it's, it's, it's a person, right? So what are qualities you look for when you're trying to hire somebody on the NDP team? Or, or what would you advise here when you're talking to these established doctors about associates? Yeah, I mean, I think we say it often, both written and verbal at NDP, it's, it's you have to like them and love them, right? And that doesn't mean that they have to be your very best friend. But I think they have to come from the same cloth from a, how do I want to treat patients? How do I treat staff? How do I want this person to be perceived in the community? And would I be happy that they are represented? representing me and the practice. And I think that's kind of like what you have to start with. Now, you clearly have to understand their clinical skill. They have to meet kind of the bar there. Sure. They have to be fast enough. They have, you know, there's a lot of things that they're going to have to learn. But I mean, I know for me personally, I always say most of the time, if you graduated with a degree in accounting or finance, right, you probably have what it takes to do the actual technical work of what we're doing, but you can't teach curiosity. You can't teach communication styles. You can't teach, you know, kind of common sense. You can't teach a lot of these like soft skills that you have to have when you're in a service-based business, which is what dentistry is, right? So I do think there's a lot of consistencies among what you look for in a client-based role like we look for when we look for new associates and what these senior doctors are looking for. And there's going to be differences. I mean, you're like, oftentimes there's a big age gap, right? Like you don't, so there's going to be things that you don't love maybe about communication or, you know, maybe how they handle themselves or slang or what they do on the weekends, right? you know, but at the same time, like you were young too at some point or, right. you know what I mean? Like you got to kind of give a little grace there. Yeah. I always tell people too, that especially have really high productive practice on, and it's like, oh, so you're looking for someone like you that's driven, that's like this, like this. And like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and like, yeah. And I was like, I know exactly where to find them. Like, what? Oh, t- please tell me. It's like, uh, they're called owners. <laughs> yeah. You want to find them? Yeah, go next door. Yeah, go, they already you know. own. They already own. Yeah. I go, so you've got this magical thing that you're looking for. And I hate to say it, it doesn't quite exist. It's just, is there kind of a shell there or, you know, like a mold there that we can kind of play around with and kind of absolutely, you're looking for a lot of those qualities, but you're not going to find you. It's just not there. You're you because you have 20 or 30 years of experience yeah. with all of this. You've had practice management. You've had just the maturity thing. You've Made had some mistakes too. kids and you're yeah. like, oh, okay. And you had all the mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. So that's not the easiest thing. And I like to be quick to let people go. If it's not working out, it's okay to let them go. And I like quick to hire too. You find that right person, you figure it out. Yeah. And then the next question kind of goes along with that. You find the right person. How do you recommend setting up a new kind of right out of school associate as far as salary compensation clearly we've heard of a lot of different options right percentage of production percentage of collections per diem minimums monthlies draws like there's a lot of ways to structure this so how do you recommend that conversation when you talk to someone 
So, I mean, there needs to be an overall plan. Two extremes is you've got a five-chair practice, and it's it's under a lease contract for four more years. And perhaps the only thing that's going to work is maybe a two-day-a-week type associate. So I typically would budget, you know, like on a per-day basis and a per diem in this example, maybe it's 600 a day. And I don't know, there's... X amount of days in this case, you know, for the month eight, you may be given five to six thousand just as a basis two days. I prefer if we can commit to this associate full time on a four day week basis. This is my ideal situation. Mm-hmm. And ideally I'm looking to commit to them anywhere between the eight, nine, ten thousand a month guaranteed. And then once they reach certain production thresholds, then I would have a adjusted kind of production pay bonus. And so in this case, if I was doing some type of, I don't know, we'll just call it, let's make the math simple, $10,000 a month is their base pay. So what I would say is, hey, associate, you're going to get paid $10,000 a month if you have adjusted production that is north of $33,333, then I'm going to pay you a bonus. And so therefore, the 15th and the 30th, you're going to get paid this thirty-three grand. but because you produced $40,000 and because 40,000 times 30% is 12,000 I only paid you 10 therefore on the 15th of the following month I'll give you the $2,000 bonus that's that's the concept of how this works it gets a little technical when I've got some space issues and you're really only working a couple of days a week I don't want to be bonusing people out you know per day if they did 800 a day and I got a minimum of 6 and take 30% of that I'd like to have some monthly mm-hmm. kind of commitments I'll commit to you on a monthly basis the number of days and here's how your compensation is going to work and then I'm going to commit to you once you hit certain thresholds for that month and I'll pay you this. Yeah. And clearly it has to make financial sense for both parties. And I think sometimes we get a little pushback on the, Hey, I'll pay you this base and then we'll reconcile monthly. You know, I think there's pushback. It should just be a percentage of what they do. But I think we like that because it kind of does incentivize the, the senior doc to make sure that they're busy. It provides some stability for the younger associate who's coming out of school with a debt and all the things. Right. Correct. And so it's just kind of keeping that in mind that like, even if they just wanted to work as a percentage of production, sometimes they have to build up the production so it takes a while and that's honestly it's part of the seller and the practices I'm not going to say job but it's a it's a responsibility it to make sure that, that they're trying to contribute to that associate has to own that too but then also just like they have a lot of stuff going on right like they're coming out of school they have a lot of debt probably more than any senior doc had when they came out of school and so that stability and that kind of base help allow them to kind of grow and do the things without having to constantly be like fighting for every dollar of production and clearly at a certain point they should be surpassing that right mm-hmm. If you find someone's never surpassing it, then, you know, you kind of have to assess why. Like, are they not meeting it because I'm not giving it to them? Are they not capable? Are we, like, not getting them out there enough? Like, what is happening that they're not meeting that? Because it should, at some point, even out for you. I just had this conversation with a surgeon, and he was contemplating bringing someone in. And, you know, his attitude was, well, you know, I'm going to pay them, but they're going to need to get out and grow their practice. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is a friend of mine. This is somebody that I'm close with. And I just stopped him. I go, their practice? Did you say their practice? Because <laughs> if it's their practice, maybe they just do a startup next door to you and just shut him up. You look at me. <laughs> like, it's like, it's your practice. Yeah. It is your practice. Therefore, why don't you give him the work? You get out and market with him or her. You get out and market by yourself. You hire the marketing person to get out to really drive the practice. This is your practice. The best person to market your practice is you. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a mind shift that you've got to get around that this, you bring in some money, it's your risk 
and the only person that's going to be the best in selling that is going to be you yourself. Well, especially if you're bringing them in for an ownership, potential partner, potential buyer type track, which not every associate is going to be the buyer owner. But if that is truly what you envision, maybe this person could be, then you are incentivized. Like it only does good things for you to be able to, to support that person. Well, like I that. know this person very well, and I'm telling you, he's not ready. <laughs> he mentally pretty good and physically saying he's saying one thing mentally like but i'm like yeah you're not ready yeah you're not no you're not i know you i know you it is so good that we are able to read these people before Mm -hmm. we take some of these people on as clients like yeah you're not ready Mm -mm. Mm -mm. you're not and buyers too sometimes we see them too they we're like i don't know this is probably the best thing for you yeah 100 percent. the same i'm assuming gentlemen asked this question how does a small practice compete for a top associate when you have a larger more corporate practice maybe that's offering maybe a higher comp rate or more benefits like how does the private practice owner win that person over so let's say that corporate's offering them oh my god 15 18 000, you know a month some two hundred thousand base guarantee all these benefits that simply you don't offer i mean your counter to that is take it i'm not going to be able to offer that what i am able to offer is a private practice opportunity and a private practice opportunity that's going to lead to a private practice ownership it's either going to be in a partnership or an outright sell so if you're just looking for the salary i am definitely not the fit for you. you're looking for private practice ownership and let me mentor you to what i have personally learned in the last 15 20 30 years and do ce courses together and set goals with you listen to you and let you run the practice even as a you know 26 27 year old that just finished i'm going to allow you that flexibility autonomy to be like an owner that's what you're going to get when you come here and be honest i think it's what people want so for this seller here i actually don't think it's a problem mm-hmm. i don't I, I think you're you've got the upper hand they Young people do want private practice dentistry, but they need to have a plan of how it's going to work. And I think they're going to be okay with lesser money. Perfect. I'm going to shift gears to the building. We had a couple questions about the building. If you own your building, how would you handle it when you sell the practice? Well, we haven't mentioned this, but obviously people are listening to this. They're already on the podcast. But if this is your first time listening to the podcast, more than likely, most of these subjects we even hit today, they're on we got other episode episodes. So there are actually episodes on this podcast. But in the end, if you're the owner doctor, you know, there's going to be a high percentage that you do own the real estate. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a great probability that that buyer wants to buy the real estate, but they can't, they can't afford it. There may be a likelihood that you don't want to sell it. Well, that's okay. They probably can't afford it anyway. Where the advice comes into you as a seller is just if you think that this real estate is just going to be this mailbox check to eternity and you're 60 now, this is probably not going to be sending you a check in the, you know, when you're 75 or 80, because more than likely that tenant, in this case, the buyer that just bought your practice, is tired of paying you rent. They have taken this practice to different heights, different profitabilities, and they want a different physical space because instead of giving you six or seven thousand dollars rent, they'd rather pay nine or 10 or 11 and go build, you know, a building that's uh, a little bit nicer, three or four miles away from your facility. Now you're left with this kind of empty building. So take advantage, certainly as a seller, if you own the real estate, get some rental income out of it, but also don't get to the point where it's a greed issue, where you're trying to get so much out of it that you don't let the buyer buy it, that you can pull the equity out. Because in the end, you're not going to want to be in your 70s with a bunch of real estate. Real estate or actually ends up being a bunch of problems. Yeah, and I would say if you're selling a portion of your practice, like it's a partnership, then we always say that if both parties are willing, owning the practice real estate in the same proportion you own the practice is always ideal. So if you own 50% of the practice, you own 50% of the real estate. And that way, when the practice pays rent, it's easy math. 
path, right? So it depends on if you as a buyer rather or a partner want to own the real estate and the seller is willing to pay, that's kind of always an important component there. And I think that's something to consider if you're thinking about transition. Do I want to sell the building or do I not? Because that's going to be a question buyers are going to want to understand. Like, is the real estate for sale? Is it a package deal? Do I have to buy the real estate if I buy the practice? So kind of having a little bit of a plan for the real estate is important as well. And just listening to what that real estate story is. I mean, if you just closed on it this year and you've been planning that building for two plus years in your life, blood, sweat, and tears just to get that thing going all the before and after hours, it's not fair that that quote-unquote thing is worth $2 million and that buyer who put nothing into this just gets to buy it for half at a million on day one. It's not fair. So do I think it's fair for you to make some rental income off of that? Absolutely. You know, maybe it appreciates a little bit in the next couple of years. I think that's reasonable and fair. Holding on to it for 20 years and never giving the your partner and your dental practice ever the opportunity, that's where I kind of draw the line. I think that's where it's not fair. So something that's reasonable X amount of years, again, you want to treat your partner equally in all aspects, including the real estate. Yep. And then if you don't own your building, so you're an owner, you have a practice, you don't own the real estate, this individual wants to know what is the ideal lease length for a potential buyer. So I'm going into practice transition. I'm either finding someone or I have a potential buyer. What lease, like my signing a lease is it better to not have like have a month to month so the buyer can negotiate it themselves? Like what's ideal there? So it's super tricky. You're trying to time it. You don't want to be, you know, let's say your retirement goal is 62 and then you're signing a 10-year lease on your 62nd birthday. You know, that probably doesn't make sense. So you're, you're starting to kind of play around from the timing perspective. So keep in mind, don't get yourself in a month-to-month type. Don't get yourself where there's three, four months left in a lease, and now we're trying to transition, you know, at the last minute. Give yourself at least a couple years, you know, on your lease. That way we get to go back and have some plan for the buyer and for you, especially if there's any space issues or if the buyer doesn't want to renew the lease and we want to have to somehow try to go from a two- to five-year lease just so we have a plan for the buyer because he or she didn't for whatever reason doesn't want to get stuck in some 10-year lease with this space. So it's important. I always say, let's look at the practice. Let's look at the what your personal goals are and expectations are. Let's find the buyer. Make sure that they feel comfortable too with this practice. Space is going to be an issue. Lease is obviously going to be an issue. And let's kind of walk through what these hypotheticals are so we can solve what we're going to do with this facility thing. Good. We still have a lot of questions in my okay, hand, okay. but we are not going to get to them. So okay. I'm going to wrap up with one more question. Right. And then I feel like we probably could do another episode. So right. may, there may be Hinman Q&A part two coming. So to wrap us up today, I'm going to ask the inverse of what this gentleman wrote. What do you see for the future of private dental practices? It's a very common question that we get. And honestly, I still believe in private practice dentistry. I just do. I just, everyone is saying that, you know, private equity is going to take over just like they did medicine. And medicine is just a different game. Everybody has to have medical insurance to protect for everything. But in dentistry, it's okay. You got to pay 300 bucks for, you know, some insurance to cover your teeth. You know, you're paying for it or not. I just... I see that corporate has brought really good things to this equation. It's made it much more competitive. I think there's some corporations that have gotten this game that have done really, really well. And I think there's a space for them. I think there's a space for them and the associates. But as far as this 10 years from now, it's just going to be completely gone. And private practice energy is just going to be a thing of the past. And uh, we told you, so I honestly don't see it. I think as long as people are educated, in this case, our buyers are educated, I think there's going to be a spot for private practice energy for a long time. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think right now where we are in the space, everyone assumes that it's incredibly consolidated. And it's sure, it's we're hearing about it more. It's happening more. But there's still a space for someone who wants to 
buy a private practice and own a private practice, there are still a lot of practices out there that are not a fit for the DSO and corporate groups, uh, size-wise or location-wise or just theory and like who they are and what they want. And we see people turn away DSO and corporate offers all the time to stay private. So it's still there. It's what you surround yourself with. And if you surround yourself with all the articles and knowledge, all you're going to see is that. And if you don't, you're going to see the other side of it too. I mean, tens of thousands of practices that don't even qualify. They're not, I mean, it could be a hundred thousand practices that out of the 152 that that don't qualify at all. Yeah. I mean, there are certain metrics that these private equity firms are looking for. And if you're not hitting these kind of million plus numbers with these amazing overheads, it's just simply not attractive to you to sell. And it's not attractive for them to buy. Yeah. And we had some other questions surrounding corporate and PE. So if we do another Q&A, we'll try to tackle some of those. There were great questions in this group. So we're going to stop here for today. So thanks for joining us on episode 98 of Transition Talk. If these questions spurred questions of your own, send them to us. We'd love to answer them on another podcast episode. Just go to ndptransitions.com. There's a contact form. You can just submit it, put your question in, um, and we'll get it on another episode. As always, make sure to share the transition love with those who may not know of us yet. And of course, subscribe to Transition Talk wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you, Hinman folks, for your questions. And And don't forget, March 23rd, 2024 is the Saturday all-day meeting about transition. That's the one I need you to come to and fill the house. Yes, and you can also (laughs) go to our website if you are interested in learning more about that and you can't find the link, go to our website, ndptransitions.com, fill it out you're interested in the Hinman program and the wonderful Joellen will get you the information that you need. So until next time, friends. Thank you, Christy. Christy.